You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning machine keeps turning death and hatred to mankind poisoning their brainwashed minds welcome to the anarchist world this week broadcast across australia on the national community radio satellite listen to the anarchist world this week australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse listen to analysis of local national international events this to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is coming to you from the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, Radical Radio. We're streaming live on 3cr.org.au in case... You get called away. Nature calls. You need to do a dump. Don't forget, the Anarchist World this week is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au, the world's greatest producer, Kelly Whitworth, who adjusted the microphone for me in three seconds after I struggled with it for five minutes, will be podcasting the program. And if you're wondering what Anarchy is all about, forget about it. Very simple. Anarchos without rulers. It's a political system based on removing power from rulers. So what gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people? Inequalities in power and wealth. So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to devolve power, that's share power, possibly through direct democratic means, and the struggle to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. So... Very conservative. I've always thought of anarchism as a conservative, conservative ideology, a conservative political program. It's about conserving the planet. It's about conserving the human race. It's about conserving peace. It's about ensuring and conserving that every individual has the capacity to develop themselves to their fullest potential. Nothing radical about that. Although it's been painted as a radical ideology. And obviously it is radical in one term, the fact that we want to get rid of rulers, whether they're self-appointed or elected. It's inequalities in power and wealth. So if you're involved in the struggle to share power, hold wealth in common and share that, I'm afraid you have the mark of Cain tattooed on the back of your neck. An A in a circle. You are an anarchist. You know, it's interesting how conditioning occurs in a democratic society or a representative democracy. It's not democratic, representative democracy. Um, Obviously, in a um, dictatorship, it's very easy to condition people. You don't do the right thing. You slap them in jail. You blow their brains out. But in a representative democracy, a condition is much more subtle. 
And I've been fascinated over the past uh, week or two to look at the build-up to uh, Anzac Day. And over the last few years, there has been a conditioning process where we have been conditioned to think of the Chinese government as our natural enemy. And a lot of the talk yesterday at Sanzac Day was interesting. It was about service. It was about sacrifice. And it was even about the supreme sacrifice. See, conditioning happens step by step. You know, we've been groomed. We are being groomed as a society to accept that war will occur. We are being groomed as a society to believe that we, we and our children and their children may be asked to make the supreme sacrifice as a service to the nation. A lot of people who are involved in this conditioning process don't even understand or know they are part of the problem, not part of the solution to the problem. Because conditioning in a representative democracy is a subtle affair, but it's constant. It's like being tortured with a drip on your forehead, drip, drip, drip. So are you being conditioned? Are you being conditioned to believe that the only way to survive as a sovereign nation state is to hitch our wagon to the US of A. Now, I know a lot of people talk about the build-up in the Chinese Defence Forces, and it's a real build-up. But when you look at the amount of money which the Chinese spend on armaments and militarisation and what the United States spend, it's guineas to gooseberries. I like to look at, does a sovereign nation state have an expansionist history? Does a sovereign nation state has taken steps in order to ensure their expansionism isn't challenged? And I like to look at foreign military bases. I'm not talking about spies, but foreign military bases, real things, not virtual bases, real bases. Now, China has one military base outside its borders. And that's a recent acquisition in Djibouti in the Horn of Africa. Now the Russians have around 25 military bases outside their border. That's excluding what's happening in the Ukraine. Yeah? The United States has over 850 military bases outside its border to protect its interests. So is our future guaranteed as a result of the alliance we now have with the United States? An alliance which has been going on for many years, but the difference today is the integration of our weapons systems for self-defence with the US. 
what that means is that as far as our defence is concerned, against a threat, that defence is dependent on us continuing to be part of the military alliance. So conditioning is a step-by-step process. Grooming is a step-by-step process. That's what's called grooming, you know. It's a step-by-step process. And my concern is, as a society and as individuals within this society, we are being groomed. We are being groomed to believe there is only one way in which we, as a sovereign nation-state, can exist. And to me... This grooming has nothing to do, nothing to do with the defence of this country, but everything to do with the defence of the the United States' expansionist policies. Now, if you think I'm talking shit, fair enough. But I do encourage you to look at the facts. I know facts are not very fashionable these days, Sometimes looking at the facts does give you a clearer picture of what's happening around you. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Equality before the law. Hmm? You like that? Equality before the law. Now, I'm pretty stupid, all right? And obviously, you're just as stupid for listening to this program. Well, that's what people would tell you. But the fact is, I'm really fascinated by the forces that have uh, coalesced in terms of their opposition to the voice referendum. And I was listening to a National Party bigwig representative, talk about the fact that the National Party is opposing the voice referendum. They're encouraging people to vote no because it's an attack on a fundamental democratic principle, equality before the law. Now, you know and I know I'm stupid, all right? but I've actually found somebody who's actually dumber than I am or a group that's dumber than the Anarchist Men Institute and that's the National Party of Australia. Now, obviously, clutching at straws, they need to use terminology and this is, this is grooming again. They need to use terminology which creates division in society. Now, the Australian Constitution, the Australian Constitution, right, determines the legal power that Parliament is able to exercise. The Australian Constitution does not create laws. My National Party colleague, 
in inverted commas, colleague, is a bit confused. Very confused. When he thinks that the Constitution is what makes laws. The Constitution sets the boundaries on the power that Parliament has. The voice referendum, irrespective you know what position you oppose or support the voice referendum, has nothing to do before the furphy that we are all equal before the law. You know you're not equal before the law. I know I'm not equal before the law. And the amount of money I've got in my back pocket, disposable income for all that voluntary taxation I haven't paid, is what gives me an edge over some bum who's got nothing. Hmm? Gives me an edge in the law courts. There's no equality. So what they're trying to say, our National Party friends, is that if you support the referendum for the voice, you are putting one group of people before the rest of society. A little bit like politician superannuation payments, the best in, the, best in Australia, apart from CEOs. So it's got nothing to do regarding equality before the law. It's about giving, ensuring that one, First Nations people are in, incorporated in the Constitution and two, by allowing them to have a voice in the Constitution, which means that Parliament needs to listen to their representatives when they pass legislation regarding their particular issues. It's got nothing to do about the law. Parliament makes the law. Constitutions don't make laws. They define the power that can be exercised by Parliament or a dictator or whatever. So when we've got National Party bigwigs who are so intelligent that they make this fundamental mistake. You've got to think that they're not stupid. This is another little dog whistle. And we've seen a lot of little dog whistles come out during the debate regarding the voice to Parliament. You listen to The Anarchist World this week on your community radio station, north to south, east to west, across Australia, and 4 Z in Brisbane, which is not part of the Community Radio Network. Now, there is a budget coming up. Well, there's a few budgets coming up. And a budget is basically, you know, something, so much comes in, so much goes out, so much is left, okay, to deal with debt. That's all a budget is. There's nothing magical about a budget. We all budget. And those of us that don't budget find ourselves in hot water by the end of the year, like yours truly. You know, now I'm I'm confused. I am really confused. We're told constantly, constantly, that bringing up children is the most important job in the world, the most important job in the country. 
all right? Bringing them up is important. So what do we do with single parents? It's hard enough making enough cash or digital dots on your bank account to pay your bills when you've got a couple, all right? When you've got two people looking after kiddies. But it's doubly hard when you've got to do the job by yourself, whether it's due to illness or divorce, death of a partner, many reasons people find themselves as single parents. Domestic violence, tons of reasons. So most people who find themselves as single parents basically are living week by week, okay? Forget about those CEOs you see on television saying what a wonderful job they've got and the fact they're a single parent. They're a handful. They're like supermodels, six, seven supermodels from seven billion people. So most people who are single parents do it tough. So what did our great Prime Minister, Mr John Howard, do? Well, he fought... These bastards are bludgers. They're leaners. They need to go back into the workforce to do part-time, underpaid, non-unionised work. So legislation was brought in which stopped single parents' benefits when the youngest child reached the age of eight. Okay? As if you can send them out to work at eight. They've got to be nine before you can send them out to work, he says, laughing to himself. So, so doing the most important job in the world depends on you getting minimal support on a new start allowance and forcing you, as a single parent, whose most important job is to look after those children you're responsible for, to go to work. And make a buck. Extraordinary. Currently there's a little bit of movement amongst the teals regarding this change. The fact that it should be brought back to 16. Look, I remember my aunt who's now dead. And her husband got killed. He used to work in the railways. He got killed on the railways. She had... Two children under six. Workers' compensation payments were minimal at that particular point in time. This is the 50s. And she relied on a single parent's benefit to bring up her children to the age of 16. Right? We did this in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. But in the 90s, we decided... That bringing up children by yourself, you need to be forced into some part-time, underpaid, non-unionised job somewhere. So it's good to see that there are a few people agitating for a change in this particularly heinous piece of legislation, which was supported by the Gillard government in 2011. Because the fact is... As we see over and over again, although a lot of people have a small number of people have got very rich, and the investment class has got a little bit bigger 
as they push up rents, what we find is the majority of people find themselves in more difficult situations because of legislation, laws, which are passed by parliament in this country. Nothing to do with the Constitution, which doesn't provide any protection for the individual from the arbitrary exercise of state power. It's basically the Australian Constitution, a document which should be rewritten, which regulates the relationship between the states which federated to form this country on the 1st of January 1901 and a central government which was created at that particular point in time. So, that's the great thing about living in the land of milk and honey, the greatest nation in the world. You can always slip backwards. And that's what we've done as a nation over the last 40 years here they come again, the fa fancy four words during the deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, uh, oh, I forgot one, corporatisation uh, period we're living in. Now, are you any good at maths? Well, I'm sure you are. I'm sure you can get this one. Even I can get this one. One third plus one third plus one third equals a big hole in the ground. You like that? One third plus one third plus one third equals a big hole in the ground. Doesn't equal one. So what am I talking about? What's this cryptic, esoteric garbage you're going on about, Jay? Well, one third of Australians, mainly elderly people, own their own home outright. The lucky third. Sacrificed their lives so they got a roof over their heads. One third. One third of Australians are paying off a mortgage. By the time they pay off the mortgage, they will have given the banks maybe six, seven, eight, nine, ten times more money than they actually borrowed in the first place. That's the beauty of paying off a mortgage. And with increasing interest rates, it gets even more interesting. And then one third of Australians rent. And most of those that rent are not in the public housing sector because the public housing sector in this country has shrunk to almost nothing. So what happens? You've got one third own their own homes, one third paying off a mortgage, one third rent. This is one of the few countries in the Western world, the representative democratic world, that really has no legislation which protects homeowners in terms of repayments, whether it's mortgages or rents. And then in Victoria, which I'm familiar with, we've got a government which is more intent on digging holes in the ground than actually doing something about creating shelter for its own people. Now, I've mentioned this particular case before and if there is one action you plan to go to in 2023 this should be it all your armchair activists armchair you know anarchists armchair people belonging to the somebody should do something about that tribe and you know those tribes you know those tribes that are out there those big tribes in australia somebody should do something about that I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Well, this is where we need you. That's right. 
We need you. Now, Margaret Kelly is a 68-year-old former adult education teacher, a single parent in the past, although her son is now flying the coop, a disability pension. She has lived at a public housing estate in Port Melbourne called Barrack Beacon for over two decades. And she's been issued with an eviction order, which takes place on the 16th of May. It comes into effect. 16th of May, that's a few weeks away, right? Now, in case you don't didn't know, the Victorian state government has followed an aggressive privatisation agenda because it needs to pay for those holes in the ground it's digging. An aggressive privatisation agenda which has incorporated the public housing sector. And we've seen the public housing sector shrink to almost nothing in terms of residential properties as the government embarks on its privatisation of public housing. And this is a classical case. Now, Ms Gelly asked us, Public Interest Before Corporate, which I'm the convener of, for some assistance. The Barrack Beacon Estate, public housing estate people, have been attempting for over a year, over a year and a half, I think, to get a meeting with the Minister of Housing, which tends to change. The current Minister of Housing is the Honourable Colin Brooks MP. And she wants to explain to the Minister on behalf of the Barrack Beacon Public Housing Estate in Port Melbourne, there is another way. And now, and that other way is incorporated in the three R's, not reading, writing and arithmetic, but retain, repair, reinvest. And she's suggesting, and the Barrack Beacon Estate people are suggesting, and many other people who are not, you know, making a buck out of the privatisation have suggested that it's much more um, suitable, not just suitable, it's much more investment-friendly if they retain the public housing estates, they repair those public housing estates and they reinvest in those public housing estates and in many of those public housing estates which now find themselves in the more desirable parts of uh, Victoria, they can be expanded on that piece of land. But no, 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 the Victorian state government has got better ideas. They've got the big housing bill, the con of the century, that's the 21st century. Now, people are confused, and I understand the whole point about grooming people to accept things, right? You've got to groom them. You know, you've got to condition them to accept that privatisation of the public housing sector is the only way. So how do we groom them? We confuse them with a change in terminology. We use friendly-sounding words to describe private housing. Social, community, affordable, inclusive housing. And even our beloved Prime Minister, who was brought up 
in a housing commission estate by a single mother who would have been forced to go out to work when her son turned eight and maybe he wouldn't be Prime Minister of the day, who wasn't forced out of her housing commission home, and maybe if Mr... Uh, what's his name? Andrews was the Premier of New South Wales. may have been a different story for our beloved Prime Minister. So we've got these words, social housing, community housing, affordable housing, inclusive housing, and I'm sure you'll find another one out there. This is about privately owned and privately managed housing, which theoretically provides housing for the poor and the distressed. Do you like that? The poor and the distressed. They're not publicly owned, they're not publicly managed. So the Barrack Beacon Estate, which currently has 89 two- and three-bedroom units, which house about 250 people, is going to be transformed, transformed into this wonderful 350 mainly one-bedroom apartments, of which 250 will belong to the developer, 100 will be social housing. Hmm? And the same thing is happening all over Victoria. Thousands of people have been displaced as the Victorian government continues this program ad nauseum for the last eight years and now it's its ninth year. Now faced with a, a parliamentary opposition which is little more than a rabble, a disorganised rabble, and the Victorian opposition which has the same policies as far as public housing is concerned, and the fact that the normal people who'd be actually protesting against these changes and demanding that public housing be retained, repaired and, re and, and reinvested in, you know, now in their, they're in the community social, you know, getting nice money for their CEOs and staff. And the fact is, there's very few people now rooting for public housing. Now, I could talk ad nauseum about the theoretical basis, you know, about public housing, that you need competition in the marketplace. You have a, you have a increased public housing sector, decrease, rents will decrease because fewer people need to rent privately. As rents decrease, people will leave investors, the 8% lucky who've got disposable income, will leave the housing market and put their money in something else, maybe Mr Murdoch's uh, little company, Fox or whatever it's called these days. And um, housing prices would fall at the lower end. And also a strong public housing sector is good for social cohesion, less crime if people got stable housing. Kids go to the same school, they have the same network of friends, and that's why you know, Margaret has been living there for over two decades. Now she's going to be uprooted. All she wants is a little chat to the Honourable Colin Brooks. Now I'm sure... The Honourable Colin Brooks Department, which has been protecting him from all these nasty, nasty, nasty people who have been evicted, who've got questions about their eviction, you know, I'm sure the Honourable Colin Brooks, the Minister for Housing in Victoria, would never evict a 68-year-old disability support pensioner from accommodation she's been in for two decades. Hmm? Obviously they'll offer something else somewhere. They can't offer that community. 
They can't offer the security she has currently. Can't offer her any of that. And the same with many of the other... Most of the people have been driven off the Beacon uh, Barrack Estate because... The Barrack Beacon Estate because, you know, they've, they understand that if they don't accept what they're given, they may find themselves homeless and they've got kids and issues that they need to face with. But Margaret has made a sterner stuff. So, what are we going to do? Well, the first thing we're going to do, and I know this is a bit radical, we're actually going to hold a media conference on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House at 11.30 on Thursday the 11th of May, which I invite you all to attend. All you armchair anarchists and armchair activists, get your wheelie frames organised and come along. Because do I expect any of the mainstream... Well, the other media, we're the mainstream media, they're just the awful. Do I expect the government gilded ABC and the corporate-owned media to respond to Margaret Kelly? No. No. They may turn up. Hopefully they'll turn up. But more importantly, you'll turn up and you're the important people. And at midday, on Thursday the 11th of May, supporters of the Save Barrack Beacon Group and Miss Kelly will be accompanied by all the people who turn up on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House to the Minister's office about a kilometre away at 50 Lonsdale Street. Now, Margaret is not asking for much. She's asking for the cruel, unfair and humiliating campaign that has been conducted by the Ministry of Housing under the leadership of the Honourable Colin Brooks, MP, to be halted. She's asking that the Minister speak to her, make an appointment, have a chat about an alternative way of looking at things. Not much to ask when you've been living at the same place for two decades and you face eviction from the 16th of May. What are they going to do? Bring the bailiffs, the police, the squat, what is it, the you know, SWAT team? Think about it. But the thing is, without your support, nothing will happen. This is a campaign about shaming. That's right, shaming. Using the media to shame the Victorian state government, not just about the personal circumstances facing one person, Margaret Kelly, a 68-year-old disability pensioner, but at shaming the Victorian government about the program it has embarked on for the eight, last eight years to privatise what's left of the public housing sector. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Descartes. You want more information about this? Go to the Facebook page, Public Housing Everybody's Business. Facebook page, Defend and Extend Public Housing, my own Facebook page, Joseph Toscana. And if you go to the YouTube channel, I think about a week or two ago I did a segment. If you go to the YouTube channel, Public, in- public Interest Before Corporate Interests, I think I did a segment on that two or th- about two weeks ago on this particular issue. But as I said before, I can sit here and pontificate like a pope and nothing will happen because obviously I've got no ear I'm not God's representative on earth, unlike the Pope. But if enough people listen to the anarchist world this week believe that a retain, repair, reinvest philosophy as far as public housing 
is concerned is important and believe that people shouldn't be dislocated from areas they've lived in for decades for short-term political gain and believe that public land should not be privatised and that private interests shouldn't be given a monopoly on providing homes for people who find themselves in you know, difficult circumstances. Well, this is the day we expect we would like to see you. Steps of the Victorian Parliament House, 11.30am, Thursday the 11th of May, etc, etc. And at midday, we walk, we accompany. We're not, doing, we're not protesting. We're having a media conference and then we're accompanying Margaret Kelly to the Minister's office. And hopefully she'll get in through the doors so she can have a chat about an appointment. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Now, just in case you've forgotten, and obviously if Anzac Day, it's easy to forget, May Day is around the corner, the 1st of May. So why is May Day an important day for me anyway? may not be for you. Why is May Day an important day for the radical fringe? Well, a little potted history, and the key is a potted history. In 1884, at a conference of the Federated Trades and Labour Unions of the United States and Canada... Joe, what are you talking about, 1884? Well, you need to know your history to know what's going on, all right? You don't know where you come from. You, you, you start believing the shit, you know, that this country was terra nullius, that we didn't dispossess violently the people who lived here for over 60,000 years. So if you know your history, you don't make those mistakes, all right? The conference decided to launch an extensive cam- an extensive and intensive campaign for the eight-hour day, which would be held on the 1st of May, 1886, okay? That was the f- that's the facts. On the 1st of May, 1886, there were demonstrations all over North America, One of the biggest demonstrations was in Chicago where over 30,000 workers marched for the eight-hour day. On the 3rd of May, two days after that march, picketing workers outside the McCormick Harvesting Machinery Company were shot dead. Four were shot dead and many others were wounded by private security guards protecting the company. The next evening, Chicago anarchists, and there was a vibrant anarchist scene in Chicago in 1886, called a rally. And only about 200 people attended the rally. You know, the usual crew said the usual things. And as the rally was breaking up, the police charged, baton charged the rally. As people were fleeing, a bomb exploded and a police officer was killed. The police... There were many police there on the day, started to fire indiscriminately into the crowd and at themselves. And at the end of the carnage, there were seven dead police, four dead demonstrators and hundreds of people who'd been injured. Now, whose fault is it? Well, eight prominent anarchists were rounded up and charged with a conspiracy to commit murder. You like that? Although only three... A Mr Albert Parsons, a Mr August Spies and a Mr Samuel Fielden had spoken at the rally. Now, all eight 
were found guilty of conspiracy to commit murder. It was a pretty hysterical environment. Those of you who think that uh, what's happening at Fox News is a bit of hysteria and Mr Trump is a bit of a hysterical thing, well, it's been going on for decades, hundreds of years. And all eight, Albert Parsons, August Spies, Samuel Fielding, Michael Swab, Oscar Neby, George Engel, Adolf Fischer and Lewis Ling were found guilty. Seven were sentenced to death and one Oscar Neby to 15 years imprisonment. Now, Lewis Ling committed suicide the night before the hanging. August Spies, George Engel, Adolf Fischer and Albert Parsons were hanged. And Fielden and Swab's sentences were commuted to life imprisonment. Guess what? Guess what? All men were victims of this media-induced hysteria. It was later proven all eight men, including the five that had died, four hung and one suicide, had nothing to do with the bombing. And those executed and those in prison received a full pardon. If you do go to Chicago, if you do go to the US of A and you go to Chicago, have a look for, for the monument to the Haymarket martyrs. Now, what's that got to do with us in Australia in May Day? Well, in Australia, on the 1st of May, 1886, enterprising brothers David and William Andrade, heeding the call of the Federated Trades and Labor Unions of the United States and Canada, launched the Melbourne Anarchist Club to mark the day. That's the 1st of May. Three years later, on the 14th of July, 1889, the International Labor Conference, the second international, decided to make the 1st of May a great day of international demonstration. There was even an Australian delegate, a Mr John Norton, who attended the International Labor Conference, the, uh, the second international. Now, the Melbourne Anarchists, or the Melbourne Anarchist Club, had been celebrating May Day before that. They celebrated on the 1st of May, 1887, 88, for a number of public meetings and lectures. And then May Day was celebrated in the offices of a Dr Maloney, who later became the radical member for the seat of Melbourne. Not just now was the seat of Melbourne held by, you know, by Mr Bant, who's a Green, but even 120 years ago it was held by a radical. Not that I think the Greens are radicals, don't get me mixed up there. And it was celebrating his offices in 1890, 1891. In 1891, the east coast of Australia was in the midst of a huge strike, Shearer strike, which led to the formation of the Australian Labor Party. And on the 1st of May, 1891, the first Australian May Day celebration was held in Barcaldon. And this procession was led by four strike leaders wearing blue sachets. And you like this, the Oddfellows Band, Oddfellows Band, which is obviously a mutual aid society, was followed by the banner of the Australian Labor Federation and the Eureka flag was carried by some partici participants during the 1st of May. In 1893, moves were made in Queensland to have the eight-hour day celebrated on the 1st of May instead of Labor Day. 
So, in Melbourne in 1892, well-known anarchist Chummy Fleming organised the first May Day march from the Burke and Wills Monument down to the Yarra Bank. And the meeting was preceded by, um, obviously, talks. Now, Chummy Fleming was intrinsically linked with May Day. He participated in every May Day until his death in 1950. And in 1951, his ashes were scattered on the Yarra Bank on May Day. Now, unfortunately, it weren't his ashes. Poor old Chummy, when he died at 83, was penniless. Penniless. And he was cremated and his ashes were donated to the Melbourne Trades Hall. Melbourne Trades Hall misplaced his ashes, never been seen again. So on the day, uh, the organisers of the May Day March realised they didn't have any ashes of Chummy Fleming. So they asked the Butchers Union to provide some ashes. They brought in a big can, which was thrown into the wind. And uh, the ashes flew back into the noses and ears and eyes of the uh, assembled gathering. So poor old Chummy Fleming had uh, had the last laugh. So, unfortunately in Victoria, unlike the Northern Territory and Queensland, where there is a public holiday for the 1st of May, there is no public holiday. May Day in Victoria is celebrated on the first Sunday after May Day, which means this year is May Day is on a Monday. It won't be till the 7th of May. So I encourage you to go to that at 1.30. But I'll be doing a little walking tour, which I've done now for a few years. It'll begin at... 11am at Chummy Place in Carlton, C-H-U-M-M-I-E. Now, Chummy Place is the only little laneway that's actually named after an anarchist in Australia because this is where Chummy lived. Chummy Place, obviously people still remember Chummy. We'll start there and then we'll wander around the Melbourne CBD looking at some important sites Victorian Trades Hall, or Melbourne Trades Hall, Agricultural Hall, eight-hour monument, State Library, the list goes on and on. The walk will be about two hours. It'll end at Her Majesty's Theatre, which was the home of the Melbourne Anarchist Club, while they rented a room upstairs. And uh, it's interesting, interesting walk. Now, I'm interested if there's anybody out there who's able to videotape the walk. If you can, that'll be great, because we're having a bit of trouble finding somebody. But if you can't, you can't. But the thing is, you're all welcome to come. There's no fee involved. It's an interesting two hours, if I say so myself. (laughs) And uh, we will have uh, lunch at the Paramount Food Hall after. So that's this Monday, the 1st of May. And talking about food, if you're listening to this program on Wednesday, the 26th of April there will be the normal lunch which we have on the last Wednesday of the month at Food Star on the Nepean Highway on the entrance to Frankston from midday to 1pm. And if you're interested in learning more about the Margaret Kelly struggle, you can join us this evening at 6pm on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House for the weekly public housing Everybody's Business uh, Vigil. 
Now, let's move on, Sudan. Now, I'm just going to go through this again because a lot of people are still confused. I'm, I'm livid. I am livid at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, or should I say the gilded ABC. Livid. They're still talking about this dispute between armed factions in the Sudan as a dispute about the pathway to democracy in Sudan. Now, I'm going to go through this again because I think it's important. I mean, I know people don't think facts are important in a virtual age, in a digital world, but facts are fundamental. Currently, there is a dispute between the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces. So what are the rapids? Well, the Sudanese army has been there for over 100 years. Since it's independence there, it's an army. Like the Australian Defence Force, it's an army, right? So what's this rapid support forces? Well, al-Bashir, the dictator of Sudan for over two and a half decades, who was overthrown about four years ago, in 2003 created a Praetorian Guard, which was called the Janjaweed. That's right. Devils on horseback. And I'm talking about bacon and a prune in the middle with a you know, piece of wood through it, you know, toothpick through it. Devils on horseback. And they were responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of people in southern Sudan, which is now an independent sovereign nation state, and Darfur, which is still part of Sudan. Tens of thousands of people brutally slaughtered in the most brutal ways. And there are thousands of refugees from that particular struggle now making their life in this country, Australia. Right? So that's one side. Now, Hameti, who is the leader of the Rapid Support Forces is basically the same man who created the Janjaweed. They've had a change of name. It's a little bit for turning public housing into social housing. Change of name. As if they've been rehabilitated. In 2019, there was a slow transition since al-Bashir had been deposed and there was power was shared by the armed forces and an appointed uh, interim government, uh, civilian government. But in 2019, Al-Fatah Buhan, who is the general in charge of the Sudanese army, and guess what? Hermeti, the general in charge of the rapid support forces, formed an alliance, overthrew the appointed civilian uh, interim government and divided the spoils. Alpha Taburan became president and Hermeti, the leader of the Janjawi, was vice president. Now, now, the plan was to incorporate the rapid support forces to the, into the Sudanese army. Now, if that occurred, Hermeti, who has always had pretensions that he would love to be the dictator of Sudan, decided this is not going to happen. So this is a power struggle. It's a power struggle between a, a paramilitary force and a military force. It has nothing to do with the struggle for democracy. The meat in the sandwich are the Sudanese people. And this is not some tin pot little country. This is the third largest country in Africa with over 60 million inhabitants. And they're the ones in the crossfire and they've been asked to 
choose between the devil, Hermeti, and his forces, and the deep blue sea, the Sudanese army. So it's interesting. Well, it's not interesting. It's terrible. But again, we need to inject a few facts. Right. You're all excited about the Australian Defence Forces upgrade? I'm a little bit concerned. We're in the midst of a climate emergency. We are seeing more emergencies. We have seen the Australian Defence Forces being called in and their equipment being called in to assist Australians in times of emergencies, like evacuating them, etc. New reports come out, not just about changing the infrastructure of the Australian military, and we can talk about that another day, but of actually withdrawing the Australian Defence Forces from providing assistance during civil emergencies. Can you imagine that? That we have to rely on an overstretched voluntary system, on overstretched paramedic staff, overstretched fire brigade? Extraordinary. What's going on? I've spoken before about the need to have a disaster have disaster response teams all over the country. I'm talking about 50 of them. And I think this highlights, especially if government policy is to remove the Australian Defence Forces from providing any help during a non-military emergency. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Now, for all you digital devils out there, and the devil has been the um, word of the program, you can access the Anarchist World this week by going to Anarchist World this week. Oh, that makes sense. You can go on Twitter, at Anarchist3CRAM, at Anarchist3CRAM, and you can go to Anarchist World. Wow, that's Instagram, is it? Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Ah, at Anarchist World this week is Instagram. My intelligent producer has told me. Anarchist, at Anarchist3CRAM. There's a little birdie there, so that's Twitter. And at Anarchist World. No wonder it's Facebook. Facebook. No wonder the Anarchist World this week is the foremost anarchist podcast on planet Earth. Watch out, Elon Musk. We're going to beat you to Mars. You've been listening to the Atticus World this week. If you want information about the lunch, which will be at the Food Star, 0439 395 489 starts at an hour. See you tonight if you're coming to the vigil. Don't forget the uh, walk through the Melbourne CBD on the 1st of May. Thank you for listening to the Atticus World this week on your local community radio station. Listen in next week to the anarchist world this week. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Brainwash minds. Oh, larger.
Become a 3CR subscriber today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Be a part of your community radio station. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.